Many thanks to those that have led us over these past few weeks with Mike's absence in, in the praise team and in, uh, with Vance being gone this morning, our thanks to Shannon and beautiful harmony from our ladies this morning. We praise the Lord for their focus and their blessing there. <clears throat> So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we welcome you this morning and turn with me along with our congregation to 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4. For those of you that perhaps are joining with us for the first time, for those of you that are guests with us this morning, we want to remind you that uh, <clears throat> we preach and teach expositionally here at Flat Creek, and we've done that now for almost 30 years, <clears throat> which basically means the Spirit of God lays upon our hearts a particular book or passage that we uh, endeavor to preach through, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and preaching through the end, teaching through the end. <clears throat> we've uh, had opportunity not only here from the pulpit, but also in Sunday school classes to probably cover most of the New Testament over the years, and we've been in First Peter. In fact, this is the 64th message from First Peter, if you're keeping track. <clears throat> and <clears throat> uh, our goal is, of course, to, to complete First Peter, and then we'll go to Second Peter. Now, depending on how far I get this morning, and y'all know I've said that numbers of times, but <clears throat> beginning either next Sunday or Sunday after next, we're going to start to look at... Um, the contradiction of Christmas. And we as Americans look for Christmas as a time of comfort, and we should, a time of um, faith, time of being with family. But Christ actually came to contradict the world system. And so we're going to look at a number of messages focused on the contradictions of Christmas. So remember that, if you would, either next Sunday or Sunday after next. We'll give you an outline at that particular time. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago, and I want to thank Vance. I don't know if Vance is tuning in and joining with us this morning. He may be on the road, but thank, uh, thanks to you for teaching and preaching uh, last Sunday. We started a couple of weeks ago looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is a, a long passage of Scripture which actually began back in chapter 2 that teaches us about Christian suffering, the suffering of Christ and the suffering of Christ's body, believers. And so I want us to pick up again this morning with verse 1. We'll read through verse 6, focus on a passage uh, with the uh, title of Ceasing from Sin, and we find these words. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh is ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable uh, idolatries. 
in regard to those, they think it strange that you do not run with him in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, I'm reading from the King, New King James, rather. Uh, we want you to follow along if you don't have a Bible. We have Pew Bibles, page 1016. That's the um, ESV version. Some changes, but not a lot. So we're going to focus this morning on ceasing from sin, suffering, eventually, through death, leads us to ceasing from sin. And I want us to also to focus on remembrance today because of the Lord's Supper. Remembrance. For those of us that are believers, we need to remember the graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross that will eventually cause us to cease from sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Bless, I pray, the word to our hearing where we are ignorant. We pray that you would open and make us knowledgeable, give us understanding. Where we are negligent because we don't read and study, forgive us, Father, for that is sin. And then, Lord, we pray that we would endeavor to as we study and as we learn to have the mind of Christ, that you would create within us the mind of Christ so that we would learn to cease from sin. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. All right, Brother Jeff, the first slide here today. <clears throat> A couple of weeks ago we looked at, uh, started to look at uh, uh, message that focused on Christian armament. And we looked at the first two. There are actually six elements of this and uh, one for each verse or combination of verses. The first one was we had to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in suffering. And not only does Peter begin here in, in verse 1, I will remind you as I have countless times, the chapter and verse divisions of the scripture are not inspired. They were added about a thousand years after the New Testament was completed, after the entire canon was completed. They, and for the most part, they are very well done. But there are times when they are not so well done, and so we are in one of those now. This actually goes back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and into chapter 4, down through verse 6, should follow along. So remember that. We arm ourselves uh, with the mind of Christ in suffering. Secondly, in verses 1 and 2, in Christian armament, the mind of Christ in ceasing from present sin. And in verse 3, we're going to go back and look at 2 and 3, but in verse 3, this morning we're going to focus on Christian armament, the mind of Christ in repeating past sin. Now, every one of us this morning is a sinner. I trust that the vast majority of you are a converted sinner, but you're still a sinner, just as I am. And so Peter is reminding this group of pilgrims, this group of individuals that have been scattered abroad the Roman Empire, and at this time the 
One of the reasons that Peter is writing is because persecution was increasing tenfold about the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, in just a few months after completing 2 Peter, Peter and his dear wife would both be crucified in Rome. So Peter is writing to these individuals that naturally are afraid. We've covered that in the first three chapters. And he is reminding them that, yeah, you had a life that you lived before, and he calls out some of that in these verses, but be reminded that you're to cease from that type of life now. Now, J.I. Packer wrote a number of years ago this. If the human mind is set up as the measure and test of truth, it will quickly substitute for man's incomprehensible creator a comprehensible idol fashioned in man's own image. Man wants a God he can manage and feel comfortable with and will inevitably invent one. He will forget because he cannot understand. The natural mind does not understand the things of God. He will forget because he cannot understand the infinite gulf that separates the creator from his creatures. And he will picture to himself a God wholly involved in this world and wholly comprehensible. And he goes on to write, we want a God that is comprehensible by the speculative intellect. In other words, we're not looking for facts. We're looking uh, facts about God. We're looking to make up stuff about God. That's what he's saying. Once people reverse the proper relationship between Scripture and their own thinking, Scripture is given to us to teach us how to think. But once people reverse that proper relationship between Scripture and their own thinking and start judging biblical statements about God by their private ideas about God, Instead of God judging us publicly through the word, their knowledge of the creator is in imminent danger of perishing. And with it, the whole idea of a supernatural religion. Now, that's, there's a lot to that, a lot in that. Packer was a very, very intelligent man. But basically what Packer is saying is, and Peter talks about, uh, in verse, the latter part of verse 3, he talks about abominable idolatries. Packer is just expressing the fact that you and I, if not for the word of God, would conjure up the type of God that we want. And Peter here is challenging these individuals, and he's challenging you and I here at Flat Creek, that without the mind of Christ... We're not going to think like God. How do you engage the mind of Christ? Through the scriptures. Now, you've heard me say many, many times, we're told to preach the gospel to ourselves each day, every day. Why? Because remembering is important in cataloging sin. 
How many things are you required to remember? Men, can you remember your wife's birthday? Can you remember your wedding anniversary? Can you remember what is required for a specific test? The remembering, do you remember to take your vitamins in the morning? Do you remember to drink your juice? Are you, we are required in life to remember a great many things. Remembering is important in cataloging sin. That's what Peter is doing here in verse 3. Next slide, if you would. Now, why do we catalog sin? Here's the reason. First of all, our sin killed Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this in detail. And our sin retards you and I, retards believers from becoming what we could become. And sin has poisoned lost humanity with deception. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God and being deceived by who we think is God. In verses 3 through 5, Peter gives us a very graphic description of the devastating effects of sin on mankind. And all we have to do today is look at the world. That's all we need to do. If we engage our minds with Christ's about past sins, then Peter says there's a reason to shun sin. So, we need to remember the devastation of sin in our flesh and that the fact that we can focus on ceasing from sin as being a part of the obedience of the will of God. Look at the end of, uh, or let's read verse 2. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So, Paul said, I forget Philippians chapter 3, I forget those things that are behind me, my former lifestyle. And I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of Christ, high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is what we are to remember. And when we do that, we follow the will of God. Now he goes in in verse 3 and he defines the will of the Gentiles. Most of the people that Peter is writing to, not all, but most of them are converted pagans. There are obviously some uh, self-righteous Jews that were converted. Peter himself was a self-righteous Jew that was converted. So he's writing these to uh, the church of the living God that existed there in the early first century so that he would remind them, you're trying to hold things in the past and he said, you're never going to cease from sin when you do that. He said, your pre-conversion experience of sin is sufficient. The way you lived before is enough. Literally, he's saying, you have carried out the desire of the Gentiles to an extent that you don't need to do it any longer. 
I admonish you, Paul would say, as he wrote in many of his epistles, I admonish you, he said, and, and uh, to the church of Corinth, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he calls out a number of different vices, and he says, and such were some of you. But you now have been converted. You now have been changed. You now have been gifted with faith and come to Jesus Christ. Don't live that way any longer. Augustine, certainly one of the great theologians <clears throat> through church history, about 400 A.D. or so, Augustine was a libertarian, a libertine. He pretty much lived the way he wanted to. His, his uh, dear mother prayed for him for his conversion for literally tens of years. Uh, Augustine was married, had several children, had relations with a woman outside of the marriage, committed adultery, had a couple of children with that woman. And then one day he was walking through a garden and he heard uh, children playing and it contained, they were crying to one another, it contained the phrase, pick up and read. Now the Spirit of God used that. Now remember now, his mother had been praying for him for many, many years. And the Spirit of God used that phrase, pick up and read. It spoke to his heart. That's what we call conviction. He was living a life that was debauched in sin. And the Spirit of God spoke to him. He went and picked up a Bible, a, a codex at that time is what they were called, and from Romans 13 he read this. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Sounds very much like what Peter is writing here in verse 3. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And the Spirit of God used this phrase along with others, this verse to convict his heart. Next slide. And Augustine came to a saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and much of our understanding of systematic theology was formulated by Augustine after his conversion. We still today, because the Word of God doesn't change, we still today follow much of his teaching because of the conversion, listening to children and reading the Word. He said, I have made every provision I could to fulfill the lust of my flesh. I need to change my clothes. God grant that he would dress me in the clothes of Christ that I may no longer make provision for the lust of the flesh. That's essentially what Peter is saying. The former ways that we lived for them and for us. We lived a life that was bankrupt. Oh, we thought it was rich. We thought it was comfortable. We thought it was a life that where we can do uh, a life we describe as the good life. But Augustine realized, and Peter writes, your life was bankrupt. So shouldn't we spend the remainder of our life in the will of God? So believers, this is written to you and I. 
shouldn't we spend the remainder of our life in the will of God? Now, he uses the word will in the latter part of uh, verse 2, and he also uses it again in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Now, that word can likewise be, uh, be uh, translated desire. The will of the Gentiles, a desire that is purposeful. What sin controls you this morning? What sin controls me this morning? Sins that control are desires that are purposeful. They may not be good for us. In fact, in most cases, they are not good for us. In all cases, they're not good for us. But we're driven by a purpose to continue to commit those sins. It also follows, notice what he says, doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked. There's a course in life. And Peter is saying the unsaved, and we know this, are without Christ. They have hearts that are purposed with evil desires. It is what Peter calls in chapter 118 a futile, aimless conduct way of life. Turn back with me there, chapter 1. <clears throat> Now, Peter's going to talk about judging in the latter part, uh, actually in verse 6. But notice what he says here in verse 17, chapter 1. And if, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your Father. That's why we're bankrupt. Oh, we think we have a goal. We think we have a purpose. We think we have a path. But it's aimless. It's bankrupt. And he says, if you continue in these things, you're giving in to the desires of your heart. Now, we're to never forget, and this, of course, is a play on words, never forget that we're to remember. Don't forget that we're to remember. what sin does to lost humanity. And we do that by remembering our former unbelieving lives. We celebrated Thanksgiving at uh, Stephanie's Friday night, not, not Thursday, but Friday evening. And one of the things that we do, and I know many of you do this, we after we completed the meal, after we were uh, full of turkey and tryptophan, and you wanted to go and take a nap, so we sat around in the living room there, and, and uh, there about 14, 15 of us, and um, we expressed what we were thankful for. Well, how do you do that? You remember. What am I thankful for? The good things, and sometimes the not-so-good things. Now, we have a tendency to think, and I, remember, I reminded you of this two weeks ago. Sometimes we focus more on 
our complaints than we do the cure of our complaints, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he was persecuted, when he went through tribulation, the scripture tells us he spoke not a word. How often does that happen to us? It's hard for us to not speak. We are surrounded by a myriad of voices. Can't get away from them. They're here. They're on your phones. They're on social media. They're on the TV their own podcasts, their teaching. We're surrounded by a myriad of voices. And yet, our self-justification is that we must voice our opinion. Whereas the precious Son of God fell silent. And I'm that way too. This is not just what Peter is writing. We're all this way. The course of sin's trinity. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression is rebellion. Iniquity is then taking that a step far, uh, further and uh, denouncing any conviction. Just sinning because I can sin. And because it's good, it feels good to sin. And then sins, which is the entire category there. In our culture today, it's likened to the hypnotic beat of a diabolical drummer with its cadence pounding out sinners, the sinners spiral into sin. That's what he says here uh, when he talks about the flood of dissipation. We'll look at that in here in just a moment. A spiral into sin. And that spiral is always downward. Sin never lifts us up. It always casts us down. Now, in verse 3, Peter uses six words to describe our form of lifestyle. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look, when we talk about the Christmas uh, controversy, the controversy of Christmas, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees where Jesus calls out 13 specific sins. So we look at these, let's read it, uh, read it again. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So we look at that and we say, well, I haven't done any of those. Well, let's see. Next slide. The first word that he uses there, or at least it's translated in this particular uh, version, is lewdness. It's a spirit which knows no restraint. It can likewise be translated, and sometimes is, is translated, debauchery. So Peter is writing to these individuals that had been converted. 
And so some of them, and perhaps us, lived in times past in, in wanton or without regard for the law. In open rebellion against God and flaunting our vice. Does that sound familiar? That's easy for us to look at the world and point fingers and say, well, I don't live like that and I don't do this and I don't do this. In fact, we become very much like the Pharisee in Luke 18. I thank God that I am not like others. And Peter is writing here to challenge. He wants them to remember. This is the way you live in the past. The second word he uses is lusts. And lust means a passion or an evil desire. Driven by the animal instinct, we revert back to something that is beyond our created nature. We corrupt the image of God. That's what lust is. A corruption of the image of God. There's a mindless indulgence into the pursuit of pleasure. And Peter says, remember, sometimes you live this way. Thirdly, he talks about drunkenness. And notice that he says here, he says, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. So he didn't want to leave anything out here when it comes to being intoxicated. It's when wine is consumed, or any alcoholic beverage, but when wine is consumed, that time it was generally wine, when wine is consumed to become intoxicated, that's the purpose. Well, I'm just going to go get drunk. Okay? I think Willie Nelson wrote a song about that. Maybe it was, uh, uh, can't think of the other guy, but anyway. I think I'll just go get drunk. It's habitual drunkenness. It's inebriation that comes from drugs. Now, alcohol is a drug, and so are many, many other things in our culture today. So it's an all-inclusive term. And Peter said there were times when you indulged yourself. It was part of pagan worship. In fact, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. The early Christian church was also attacked because when they took of the body of the blood, rather, of the Lord Jesus in the wine, many considered that to be not only drinking the blood, but in as the church at Corinth, they overindulged and became drunk. And Paul said, What's wrong with you? Four and five, he uses the words uh, revelries and he uses the word drinking parties or carousals is, is another term that can be used, basically meaning a wild orgy. And generally, orgies don't happen unless there is some type of alcohol or some type of drug-induced coma or semi-consciousness that causes people to 
hallucinate, and then they lose their minds. But Peter says, I want you to have the same mind as Christ. Did Jesus ever lose his mind? This is what you did previously. This is not the way you live once you come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A long drinking bout. We could take the time this morning and go back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, and there we are told about, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 5, uh, Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar rather, and the drinking that took place uh, uh, and the party that went on for six months. So you think you party hardy now? No, you don't. Six months. And at the end, Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and the prophecies that Daniel himself saw came in, and you remember the hand that wrote on the wall, Mini, Mini, Tikal, Ufarsin. You, Belshazzar, have been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. That's what verse 6 says. Tonight, your kingdom is taken from you. So God's patient. He permitted them six months. Continuing in this type of thing, we're told in extra-biblical writings, writings outside of Scripture that Josephus and some others uh, penned many, many years ago to refer to a troop that's used to, uh, to refer to a troop of drunken, staggering, loudly riding people caused by drunkenness. And it's usually associated with cult worship of false gods. So remember that. And I hope and trust that you've never been involved in anything like this. But when we talk about wild orgies or revelries or carousals or anything like this, just remember, this reverts back to paganism. This is not part of our Christian faith. And then he closes out this verse by using the phrase abominable idolatry. So when you take all of those and put them together, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, this lifestyle occurs because of abominable, abominable idolatries. And as I said before, three main idols in our culture today in America. The first one is always self. What can I do to, to ingratiate myself? What, what can I do to gratify my flesh? That's what Peter is saying. What can I do to, to make life easier for me? The first idol is always self. goes back, harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> the serpent and Eve. Has God said... Hey, God's holding something back from you. I've had people tell me that before. He hasn't told us everything. Absolutely he hasn't told us everything. If he did, he wouldn't be God. 
Because we want a comprehensible God. God's incomprehensible. That's what Packer said. That's what the scripture says. The secret things belong to him. He's holding something back. That's just the perversion of our sinful minds. The worship of idols. Idolatry through the Old Testament and into the New Testament is an abomination to God. An abomination means he will never forgive idolatry. That's what an abomination is. He forgives it when we come to Jesus Christ. But if unsaved people continue in it, it is an abomination to him. He hates it. You will have no other gods before me. It's indicative of all five of the previous vile affections. What leads to idolatry or what is practiced in idolatry? These things. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Peter asserts that believers were now suffering because they rejected this former lifestyle. And that is what the Spirit of God does in our hearts and in our lives. Next slide. And Peter says, haven't you had enough? Do you really think you feel better after you've been involved in all these things? Do you think you're smarter? Do you think you're richer? Enough, he said, of the loose, vile, wicked living. Enough being driven by passion. Enough drunkenness. Enough orgies. Enough abominable idolatries worshiping a culture of death. It's where we are today. First idol is self. Second idol is abortion. You've heard me say that. Nice. We, we want to codify that now. And thirdly is the LGBTQ plus whatever movement. They're, they're idols. Remember where you lived. What you were like when you were living that way. What sin did to you. The pain of your sensuality and your love. All of these things rolled into one. Remember these things. Christ has forgiven you. Christ has saved you. Christ has given you a new, um, a new life, an eternal life. And Christ is to give you a new mind. A new mind. Sometimes, and as I said, I hear people say, well, I don't live like that. And I hope and trust that you don't. Hope and trust that... We, we are very moral people. Okay? I didn't live that way before I was converted. And I certainly don't live that way now. Why, why are you focusing on this? Because this is the Word of God. That's what Peter is writing. And he's writing it to the church of the living God today, not just 2,000 years ago. 
Jesus said this, Matthew 15. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. I mentioned about being silent. The things that come out of our mouth verbally come from the heart. They defile a man, Jesus said. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus confronting people. We talked about Jesus criticizing. This is, a critici this is Jesus criticizing the Pharisees. Out of your hearts comes these things. And he mentions them. He lists them. These are the things he said that defile a man. And in Luke 18, 11, I reminded you that the Pharisee stood at the temple and he lifted his eyes and prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. And this just shows us that out of our hearts come these evil thoughts. Humankind is incurably religious. As I said, three main idols, not all of them, but three main idols in our culture today. We are incurably religious and we are legalistic to a fault. We're always searching for some elusive moral clarity. And the moral clarity is right here. latest book or the latest podcast or someone has come up with some way that we can where we can live for 200 years some moral clarity while well, it's right here the book is given to prepare us to meet God that's what verse 6 says it's preparing us to meet God every one of us this morning every one of you tuned in or perhaps that will listen later on via the internet you are here, and one day you will meet God. Are you prepared? Sinners package their sin. We love it. We rarely put it on a shelf. We put it in shiny boxes. We put exquisite ribbons and bows on our sin. And then we justify it as a form of godliness, which is precisely what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. We justify it as a form of godliness, but it is devoid of God's grace. Peter's writing to remind these people that it is by the grace of God. Now, in verse 4, I'm going to look at this and let's see what we got here. Look at verse 4. In regard to these, your past life, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Okay, so many of you have left that lifestyle behind. He said that's a good thing. But here's the other thing. You have friends and you have family that don't understand this. Believers are thought to be strange when we avoid that type of lifestyle when we avoid that type of worldview. 
And this is applicable today as it was then. Next slide. This does not change. So the fourth thing is in Christian armament, the mind of Christ and living a strange life. <laughs> We're not living a life to be accepted by everyone. In fact, Paul would write, be leery when all men speak well of you. We're not here to win friends and influence people. We are here to live and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and through our love and grace and kindness to others be an example that calls them to Jesus Christ. Peter adds that there's a, there can be a surprise here. He says they think it's strange. It's the word from which we get xenophobia, afraid of people that we don't know. It could be foreign people. It could be people of different races. It could be individuals uh, of uh, uh, males and females. It, it, it's an, it's a, uh, an all-inclusive category. And Peter says these folks are astonished. They are shocked. There is something that appears out of the ordinary in a believer that walks and talks after the mind of Christ. And biblical Christianity today is now one of the phobias. Just turn, turn the news on. Listen to it. We're, we're strange. We've always been strange. We're supposed to be strange. J.B. Nichols wrote, The licentiousness are bound by habits. The licentious, rather, are uh, sinners is another word, are bound by habits that cannot break. They cannot break, rather. Inflamed by lust, they cannot extinguish. Gravitated downward by a power, they cannot by themselves resist. And they are astonished at the complete change in the lives of those believers whose whole aim in life is now the will of God. No one is born Christian. No one comes into world into the world with this type of background. There must be a change. We must meet Jesus somewhere along the way. And when we do, Nichols said, they are astonished because their whole aim in life now is to live for the will of God. And that's strange. Michael Welch wrote, but, but the master comes and the foolish crowd never quite understands the worth of a soul and the change that wrought by the touch of the master's hand. People don't understand. They never shall understand until the Spirit of God moves in their life. They don't understand and they feel guilty because we don't run with them in a flood of dissipation. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, last year, I know some of you have been to Niagara Falls too. Just down the river where the falls are, there is um, an area called the Devil's Whirlpool. And uh, if you want to, we didn't, but if you want to, you can take a jet boat from up the river to the Devil's Whirlpool, and it spins around. Very dangerous, almost as dangerous as the falls themselves. 
That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the confluence of water, the spiraling, spiraling cistern or the cesspool. It pulls you down. You cannot escape. And people think you're strange because of that. One final slide and we'll close with this this morning. He uses the word dissipation. And it's not used very often in, in uh, the New Testament. In fact, not used very often in the Bible itself. Dissipation is a state of evil in which a person thinks about mindly pursuing their passion, rushing into sin, cesspool. They don't care they're going to get sucked down. I got to do this. I got to have this. And Peter says our minds, and that's what he's hearkening back to, the same mind of Christ, the self-control of Christ because our former lifestyle was hardly a spa for belief. He said, they blaspheme you because of this. They defame you. They attack your reputation. They slander. That's what sin does. Who does he think he is? Who does she think they are? For out of the mouth. MacArthur said, there is plenty of evidence from pagan as well as Christian sources that it was precisely the reluctance of Christians to participate in the routine of contemporary life, particularly conventionally accepted amusements, civic ceremonies, and any function involving contact with idolatry. Avoid your former lifestyle. And this caused them to be hated. It caused them to be despised. It caused themselves to be suspected of illicit practices. It caused and brought on their suffering. If you choose to walk with the devil, don't be surprised at where you end up. So Peter writes these things to teach us that in death we cease from sin, but as we live, we live to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to be ceasing from sin. It's a tough thing. It's difficult, but it's the promise of God. And in this, we can learn that we have the armament of the mind of Christ to live a life that glorifies him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your house. We thank you for the word. And we do pray, Father, this morning that as we've looked at these verses that you would challenge us again that we uh, are not to fall back into, Old Testament word would be backslide, into this type of lifestyle. We do pray that we would remember where you found us, how vitally important that is to remember our former and previous lifestyle. Sometimes, Father, because of temptation and because of 
the, our weakness in the flesh, we may revert to some of these or to some of the others that Christ himself has listed. We ask for your forgiveness. We know that you are willing and able to forgive us, cleanse us from our sins. And so we thank you and praise you for that this morning. If there's one here today that does not know your Savior, I would ask, Lord, that you would lead them by your Spirit into the truth of the living God. They'd come to know Jesus as Savior this day. Challenge our hearts as believers that we would go into this world, leave this place today and go into this world being a beacon that would, uh, where the Spirit of God would shine through our lives and it, that people would see Jesus not only in our lives but in our minds as well. In Jesus' name I make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to sing a verse of a closing hymn this morning. <clears throat> if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, there's good news. Good news includes the fact that we can't save you. But Jesus can. Not only can he, but he will. And he will change your life. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. When you meet Jesus, he doesn't leave you like you are. He changes you. As we sing this morning, we'll give you a time to step out of the pew, make your way down here to the front. We'll be glad to take you to a private prayer room and with an open Bible lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God gift you with faith, you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As a child of God, <clears throat> the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord is Savior. Perhaps you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Perhaps you are desiring to unite with the Lord Jesus, uh, with this church, rather. Statement of faith, a transfer of letter, we encourage you to do that as a child of God. Put off these things of the flesh and look forward, look back to the cross, remember the cross, and look forward to Jesus coming. What number, Miss Shannon? 